Hello, everyone, and welcome to SecurityScape, where we discuss current research and events related to security and strategic studies. Thank you so much for joining us today, November 15th, 2021, for our second episode, where we will be discussing the changing US security policy over the past two administrations. Before I introduce our guest, my name is Jacqueline Parasini, and I am a second year Master of Strategic Studies student in the Center for Military, Security, and Strategic Studies at the University of Calgary. A bit about my background, I got my Bachelor of Arts in History from the University of Calgary in 2017, where I focused on 20th century European history with a particular interest in totalitarian regimes. I had the good fortune to live on the edge of Europe in Lithuania for two years, so I got to see a lot of interesting developments firsthand there. Nowadays, my research interests primarily focus on Russian foreign policy, especially in Eastern Europe and the Baltics, which of course involves NATO and US security policy. And that is how our guest today and I met each other. Our guest today is the US security expert here at CMSS, Dr. Terry Tariff. Dr. Tariff is the Arthur J. Child Chair of American Security Policy and a Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies. Dr. Tariff is a co-editor of the U University of Calgary-based Journal of Military and Strategic Studies and was formerly the co-editor of the journal Contemporary Security Policy from 1991 to 2005. Dr. Tariff was also a visiting lecturer at the NATO School Allied Command Transformation in Germany from 1999 to 2009. Dr. Tariff joined the Center for Military Security and Strategic Studies and the Department of Political Science at University of Calgary in 2008 after having been a member of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Birmingham, UK for 12 and a half years. While in the UK, Dr. Tariff was the recipient of three UK Economic and Social Research Council grants to conduct international studies on change in military organizations and transatlantic security issues. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Tariff. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you joining us. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about US security and US security policy. So let's jump in. I'm a little curious to start off this conversation about your current research interests and what you're working on at this point in time. Uh, well, I mean, broadly read again, like context, I'm really kind of mainly interested in how and why, why and how militaries change and adapt to ongoing circumstances. I have been working on the military change in the US Marine Corps uh, for about 15 years now. Uh, I'm also, of course, interested in, in looking at the US Army, something else uh, another organization I've written on, and the US Marine Corps, because they're both, again, engaged in a period of when they're undertaking major change. And what is interesting is the parallels between today, because they're doing this in the aftermath of essentially the Iraq War and Afghanistan, and shifting towards what they see as a peer competitor, in this case, China. One goes back to Vietnam, which is the period that sort of is the beginning point for my earlier study. It's the same sort of thing. The US Marine Corps and the US Army, in both of those cases, come out of a very similar type of war, different place, different time, but, but shift away from being largely ground force wars, particularly for the Marine Corps, to focus on how to address a peer competitor, in that case, period, the Soviet Union. So there are these interesting parallels as to how they're doing this. That's very interesting. It's um, That's one of the interesting things about U.S. security policy and U.S. security in general is, is sort of these parallels and uh, the differences and the compar comparative aspects 
of these parallels. So, so my next question then for you is, in your opinion, what is U.S. security policy and what makes it distinctly American? U.S. security policy is actually quite hard to describe. Maybe it's almost impossible, but broadly read is about those policies that the United States adopts in order to protect its citizens, its territory, its interest about the planet, um, which are indeed planet-wide, and, and also to a degree, the, those interests of its allies and friends. So that's very broad. Now, a lot of that involves military aspects and issues, which of course is one of the things I focus on, but it's such a huge, huge topic area because uh, it really goes down to can include such things as the role of women in the military, uh, where do you get your nuts and bolts to put on a machine, all these logistic questions. So it's such a large subject matter topic that anybody who says, as myself, U.S. security policy, I'm focusing on a very little narrow bit of it. Um, and again, I always like to just make, make this point is for the last 20, 10, 10 plus odd years, what is interesting in terms of the United States, particularly given we have the COP, uh, 21 going on is the U.S. military has basically understood that climate change is happening, has been working to adapt to that particular reality, um, unlike in a large other parts of the United States uh, government policy or political class, however you want to put it. So I suppose then one of the things that makes it uh, distinctly American is the worldwide uh, broad, I suppose, like the very, very, very broad um, contours of U.S. security. As you said, allies, as, as Canadians, we rely heavily on U.S. security. Um, Western allies, of course. There's Australia, which is a pretty hot topic at this point. Um, what other things, in your opinion, make it distinctly American, as opposed to, I don't know, Canadian or Australian or European Union? I mean, a key point, I mean, you just made a part, it is a global power. Uh, and hence its interests are global in character. And it's one of the few states, particularly in the Western world, and indeed it, at this point in time, it's still the only state really that has that, that sort of reach and breadth. So its military is largely expeditionary. That is, it's going to operate abroad. But beyond that, it is basically the strategic culture of the United States. And again, everybody's heard the term American exceptionalism. Uh, I always like to point out there's French exceptionalism, Canadian exceptionalism. Uh, you know, all states have this, but this sense of exceptionalism. But in the case of the United States, it actually strongly influences both how they see the world and how they interact with the world. Uh, and it is based on this sense that they are exceptional in the sense that going back to their founding, they're different than the rest of the world. And indeed, in many cases, it comes up they're better than the rest of the world. So there is this aspect of they believe, they think, or they're pretty convinced, consciously or unconsciously, and again, an awful lot of this is subconscious, that the rest of the world should be pretty much like them. So they do try to export their form of political systems. And again, we've seen how problematic that can be in the case of Afghanistan, where they tried, in essence, after 2001, going in to get at Al-Qaeda, then decided once we're here, well, we're going to try to transform this into a Jeffersonian style of democracy and utterly failing in that, not least because, of course, Afghani culture is just not suited for that form of democracy. So that missionary aspect is one of the key elements of this. 
And we've seen an awful lot of that over the last 20, 20, 20 30 years, particularly after the end of the Cold War. Uh, whether that will die down a lot after the failure in Afghanistan and to some degree the failure in Iraq, it's interesting. We see the current administration seems to be backing away from those sorts of things. A lot of the debate now is a key lesson to learn is we cannot create democracies if they don't previously exist. Yeah, that's that's a, a really interesting sort of, as you said, sort of a, a change over the last 20 or 30 years is that this administration has a lot of domestic pressure to kind of uh, stay out of democratizing adventures. Speaking of sort of changes over time, what was the state of security policy in the US under Trump? And what challenges does Biden face because of this? I don't think we have enough time really to really address the whole thing about Trump. But I think the key thing, if one looks at the four years of the Trump presidency, you have basically a foreign security policy that broadly wasn't particularly coherent. But there were some enduring aspects of his approach that go, I mean, that people can identify in Trump going back to when he was just, you know, a wannabe magnet, uh, construction magnet which is this view that the allies have long exploit, exploited the US and needed to pay more of their fair share. Uh, another element was that free trade was bad for America, that the deals that America had made actually harmed America rather than helped it. And basically the, the general view that his predecessors, predecessors were gullible and he's gonna do better, only I can fix it as he used to say. And what that relates really encompasses one looks at that period and again, Remembering, he goes through a number of national security advisors. He goes through a number. I mean, there's just this rotating cast of characters around him in the national security policy field. Um, but he himself and his approach is largely transactional as what's in it for the United States and to a degree what's in it for he himself, President Donald J. Trump. Basically throughout his long period, he, given that view, he believed that the allies had taken advantage. He actually treated our America's good allies very badly, both in terms of trade. Uh, he disparaged their allies. At the same time, he's disparaging them. He's embracing authoritarian dictators like Vladimir Putin. What that did through that period of time is slowly but surely undermine the alliance relationships between America and these longstanding good allies. And these were relations that have been developed over long periods of time. Uh, and this undermining of the trust was re is really a fundamental issue because it ultimately harmed his ability to address some of the, the things he actually, it, or his administration broadly got right. And one of those, of course, is this issue of China. Because again, he's looking at the trade relationship, uh, trying to pressure China through various trade impositions, embargoes, sanctions, uh, tariffs, et cetera. But the problem was having China's this big, big economic entity. And one of the problems you run into is that without being able, to, without having the other allies on board, it really reduced the ability of the United States to put leverage. So though he had the right idea, having lost the trust of these many allies, they couldn't actually put the sort of pressure on China that maybe would have been useful. So in other words, he uncut his own approaches by his wayward sorts of behavior. But the overall legacy of the Trump administration is his undermining of the traditional US leadership role in the world, 
and the fact that even allies today are not convinced whether they should or can trust the United States going forward in the way they have done for pretty much the post-World War II period. Yeah, that's um, that's a really good point is uh, the power from below aspect. When you don't have the power from below, if you undermine your allies who are giving you power from below, uh, how do you expect to actually exercise that that power, exercise uh, beneficial sort of policies to the United States? Um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting how Trump managed to to do that. Well, it was it was it was pretty easy how he was going to do it within about the first six months of his administration. But you know, it was the fact that we had to then witness it for another three and a half years because we're now almost 10 months into the Biden administration. So we're starting to see some shape of what they're doing. There's this consistency of how you address the issue of China. Uh, that said, that goes back to the Obama administration. Because uh, again, part of what the Obama administration wanted to do is get the United States out of the Middle East, as they put it, so they could turn, as they use the term, pivot to focus on China and and the Far East or the Near East, depending on how you want to want to characterize it, depends on which side of the Pacific you live on. But they weren't really able, he wasn't able to do that because they were still stuck in the Middle East because they get drawn back into places like Syria and Iraq and they're still in Afghanistan. Trump also wanted to get out of Afghanistan and pivot. But again, you're kind of caught up in these sorts of things and Biden, of course, then comes in. He's actually sort of, again, they've made some progress along the lines. He's continuing some of the aspects of the Trump administration towards China, which is, which is useful. Uh, but again, it's sort of what exactly do you do about that? How do you actually characterize China? Is it a competitor? Are they an enemy or an opponent? And of course, the policy discourse increasingly is around, is there a new Cold War emerging between the United States and China? with some people going, we really don't want to go there uh, or use that term. And other people going, no, this is exactly what it is. And we need to contain China. Uh, and so the Biden administration, where they are in all of this is a little bit unclear. I mean, quite clearly, you're seeing the holdovers from the Obama administration uh, moving forward. Because again, the United States under Obama did shift a lot of folks towards uh, East Asia, the Pacific eastern side or the western side of the pacific rim so you're starting to see something akin to the old containment perimeters we saw in the days of the cold war vis-a-vis -vis the soviet union how much of that is deliberate and again you have the quad india japan united states australia okay that's the southern rim and again india has concerns about about china so the united states is reaching out again that's not an alliance people have asked alliance. no it's not it's a cooperative agreement but so there's that consistency of China, how to address China. And again, the details vary, and we'll see how exactly it plays out with Biden. The other aspect, of course, that is fascinatingly and interesting is Afghanistan. Obama wanted to get out of Afghanistan again. Under Obama, we, they, you know, we're, they're planning to get it in 2014. Then this will be up by the end of my term, 2016. Trump believe the United States could get out of Afghanistan, but of course they're down to about two and a half thousand people when he finishes. And Biden has long believed, going back to when he was vice president for Obama, that the United States really didn't need to be as deeply involved in Afghanistan as should get out. So they're now out of Afghanistan. We now have the picture of Brigadier Donahue. 
Donahue, the last man out of Afghanistan, or last soldier out of Afghanistan, he's not the last American, because there's still Americans there. But that debacle, the way it all played out, is actually, again, undercut a key element of what Biden's foreign policy and security policy is, as is restore faith in American leadership. As he keeps putting, we're back. America is back. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting sort of continuity. Um, even like you have China, of course, Afghanistan, of course, um, of course, undermining the allies. That was totally like a Trump thing. But then you do have this sort of undercurrent of Trump's, I don't know, make America great again. And then Biden is like, we're back. Like we're reliable security umbrella. We're here for you. Um, that is actually how you make America great again. That is sort of the whole point is their ability to do this rather than undermining their ability to do this. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, Trump's understanding what make America great was, was make Donald Trump great. I'm sorry. I'm allowed to say that. I'm a, I'm a Canadian citizen. Uh, and you, know, you can criticize the president, former president of the United States. His problem was, of course, he's, he believed that, okay, there, there are, the United States should incur no cost for being great. Where the United States best is always under there are some costs. It's to their benefits, yes, the allies might be able to free ride off of this, but there's a benefit to having those allies on board, to have them trust this. And, and that cost in the greater scheme of things is actually quite small. Yes, perhaps maybe NATO, the North Atlantic, or the European allies can't really, you know, they, they would struggle to protect themselves against an invasion by Russia. Not that anybody expects that to happen, but the United States knowing fully well that they don't have to worry about Russia so much because they do have that deterrent capability there, but also have these states willing to work with the United States in a whole range of important issues beyond simply the security sphere. But also when push comes to shove, many of them being willing to help the United States up to and including providing military capabilities, not at the same scale. Scope as the United States, it's just not possible. Uh, for most of these states, and indeed for all of the states there. But that is helped for diplomatic reasons. It's, it's helpful in terms of how you manage issues. And of course, part of the trust was the United States was, again, for the Europeans, yes, the United States might be acting first and foremost to protect its interests, but they will also do the best they can to protect our interests. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump is not going to protect our interests. So why will we help the United States? So I suppose that's one of uh, the biggest challenges Biden faces is reassuring allies that, yes, indeed, you can trust us, the United States. And, and it seems as though he's pretty uh, like it's Biden. So vice president to Obama. Uh, Obama was, you know, fairly decent foreign policy wise. So I think that gives a, a lot of um, reassurance just on that sphere. But the Actually, challenges that Trump left us with. Actually, no, it doesn't. No. OK. The European allies. I mean, in particular, the European, but I think you see these things over in uh, Asia. They're not sure they can trust America anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. First, OK, Trump, we can claim he's an anomaly, but from their perspective, OK, they could elect somebody like Trump again. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they could elect Trump again. Right. I mean, Trump hasn't gone away. So there's that issue. The next issue is, of course, is. Has Biden actually comported himself, his foreign policy comported in a way that goes, you can rely on us? Well, you have what happened, the Afghanistan withdrawal debacle, 
That raises questions about, can we trust the Americans? The UK, US, Australian nuclear deal raised questions in Europe, particularly obviously with France, can we trust the Americans? Are they reliable allies? And then you look at how Biden's ability to manage his own democratic caucus in Congress, he, he's struggling. And they go, does he have the political capital? Does he have the political clout to make this shift? They're not convinced. Trust once broken is really hard to regain. Trump broke it. And it's going to take more than Biden, at least the first 10 months. He hasn't really done near enough to even start to bring that trust back. We'll see. Yeah, we, we definitely will see. That's a very interesting point. So that kind of brings to the next question. We've talked uh, about Ch China as, as a great security threat. So my next question for you is then is, is, in your opinion, what are the greatest security threats to the US today? The greatest, most significant, or the most challenging? It's internal domestic disarray, Un unquestionably. It's this internal domestic array. The intense polarization Again, Biden's seeming inability to be able to manage caucus to get major pieces of legislation through, but against this polarization, it's the seemingly undercutting of American democracy by those who support Donald Trump's big lie. I mean, there was just recently a Pew poll that said 17% of the only 17% of the world believe that America's democracy is something worth emulating. America's no longer exceptional to the rest of the world. And it also, again, is one of those hard realities, which is that, yes, external conditions can impinge upon US power, but it's the internal conditions that generate and give it that power. And that's being eroded. And again, it's that old soft one goes back to Gibbons and you know the, the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. Big empires, big states, you know, are they gonna commit suicide or are they gonna be murdered? Uh, when they go, in the case of the United States, it's not going to be murdered, but are they in the process of committing suicide in terms of being a global power? Now, in principle, what they refer to reconciliation, but was an attempt to redress some of that. But we need to do this because, again, the weakening of America is as much because of its internal conditions as it is from this impinging on the outside. It almost appears to be like similar to a feedback system. You know, the more it fails internally, the less likely allies will take it seriously, the more likely uh, more hostile states will view, uh, will, will challenge the United States more and more often on different sorts of fronts. So it's, it's really interesting how it, it does seem to be feeding itself now. Do you think that we've hit, in terms of the domestic um, internal instability in the United States. Do you believe that we've hit a tipping point or do you think that Biden can still implement some policy or some practices that will you know, calm it down a little, slow it down a little? I mean, that's a good question. And, and it's a hard question to answer. Are we at a tipping point? There certainly are many commentators, Americans who basically fear what the United States is at a tipping point. I mean, the democratic processes that are being undermined by Republicans in a very deliberate manner. I mean, all these full audits of election results, even though the election results have been audited and declared free and fair, uh, that just undermines the average American's conviction that these processes are free and fair and, and legitimate. 
you're in this period of which, again, it's going to be very unstable. Now, you're also getting all these efforts to suppress the votes in Republican-run states. Whether or not they can reverse that, hard to say. You can win without decrying buying into Trump, but most of them still do. That could be a plus because Americans could get really tired of this. The problem is 70% of Republican Party members believe that the election was stolen from Trump. We've already seen the violence on January the 6th. Potential for violence is still out there. But it is dangerous, uh, to my mind. And indeed, in some, some respects, I'm paying more attention to domestic politics these days than the foreign politics, because that is so important to the future, first of the United States, but because the United States is so important, for example, to us here in Canada, um, given the fact we have a rising power, which is authoritarian in nature, and wants to change global norms, global procedures to suit its purposes, I mean, the question I always ask, would you rather have the United States being the leading state on the planet or the Chinese or Russia? Yeah, <laughs> I definitely feel that question. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, it's just one of those sorts of issues. Yes, the United States is flawed. It does all kinds of things that are bad. It's horrible. But you know, we're not going to be the leaders of the world, not Canada. Even if we had the same sort of power in the United States, we would, we, we would be just as bad, make the same kind of mistakes in our own way, because we're not a perfect state. We just think we are because we think we're, oh, right, we're exceptional because we're better than the Americans. <laughs> that, that old joke, I suppose. 2022 then will be sort of a litmus, litmus test, uh, pardon me, a litmus test for the future for 2024, maybe some foreshadowing in the 2022 midterm elections. Yeah, I mean, most definitely. And, and to be fair, you're more likely to see a Republican co run Congress again, given the narrow margins. Uh, that's fairly normal in, in midterm elections after a president. They generally, Congress starts shifting back towards the other party that lost. But it's going to be how the campaigns are run and what are the issues. And again, how the behavior is, whether or not losing GOP except the loss. Yeah, I suppose that's really... or. Or as you said, with the, the Democrats as well, will the Democrats accept the loss or will there be, um, you know, will both sides start to resemble each other more than, than the center, uh, more than they resemble the center? So my, my last question for you is, if you had the opportunity, what piece of advice would you give President Biden? Get your act together. <laughs> the United States really needs to get its internal affairs in order. I mean, it's got a lot of external challenges. China is a potential real threat. And again, the issue over Taiwan, for example. But how do you manage those sorts of problems when your internal domestic system is broken, it's fractured, it's not working well? Just to use an example, would the United States public support the United States defending Taiwan? No, I mean, Hard terms, the United States with China had a serious go, military go, attempt to capture Taiwan. I'm not sure the United States could actually stop that. It's called the tyranny of distance. It's like, what, 8,000, 9,000 kilometers away. That's a long logistics trail. If one goes back through the Cold War, the United States was more expansive, more willing to act internationally when their economy was doing well, when the American people felt good about themselves, their prosperity, their future prospects, et cetera. And when those prospects during economic hard times, America tends to pull back in. Well, we're in one of those 
pulling back in period. <laughs> That's where this internal sense is you need to have a fairly unified America. And I don't see it being unified anytime soon. Uh, those yeah. domestic problems are, are, are deep. And so, yeah, you got to start doing this. And again, you have some people who are arguing this, this Voting Rights Act bill. Uh, and again, some people argue about the reconciliation bill. There are other aspects about this that they're talking about. And again, Joe Biden wants to be a domestic president uh, to focus on these domestic problems. But given the narrow margins that they have in Congress, can he actually get much done? And yeah, it's, it's, it's not clear that he can. And if 2022 goes according to traditional scripts, he's going to be facing a Republican Congress, or at least one of the two houses, whether the House of Representatives could go Republican while the other might stay Democratic. It's a very interesting um, sort of timeline we're living in where the United States is, is pulling in the China, Russia, uh, all, all of this domestically with the domestic terrorism and, and all of this Afghanistan. It's kind of a, a kind of a crisis moment to be pulling in. It, well, it is, but because a lot of that was domestic, you need to pull into a degree. But again, the fact that you're pulling in again potentially exacerbates those external pressures. She said, there's all this gray area, you know, cyber attacks, cyber theft, cyber espionage, uh, all the misinformation campaigns that are feeding in it. Because again, these enemies are trying to feed into this dis internal disarray as much as they can. But it also degree, what's, what, to what degree does this embolden like China is one of the reasons why it's taking a much more hardline or harder stance against Taiwan because they believe the United States is, is not going to be willing to act. A particular reality is, this goes back to the infamous statement by Madeleine Albright when she was U.S. Secretary of State in 1996, the United States is the indispensable nation. To some degree, that's still true. If the United States doesn't lead, what does the rest of the world do? We're in that area, temporally speaking, in the near three, four, or five years. Potentially dangerous, but potentially, again, I, I, I mean, I was you don't want to overplay how dangerous this is. A lot of what goes on is, is rhetoric. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is a case of, yes, there are dangers out there. You need to be prepared. But at the end of the day, don't create threats where they don't exist. Don't create dangers where they don't exist. And the very, other- Very good advice, yeah. Reality is to understand that well, the United States, you know, the global policeman, the global cop in the box, it cannot address all of any, every, every crisis out there. We need the allies to contribute more. Well, yeah, any, any closing thoughts, any, anything you'd like to add before we, we end it? Thank you very much. It's been so interesting so far. Paying attention to the United States is endlessly fascinating and disturbing <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in many respects. What goes on in the United States, unfortunately, whether one likes it or not, affects all of us in one way or another. And I said, for us here in Canada, they're our southern border. And as I always like to joke, somewhere in deep, very deep in the Pentagon are the plans for the invasion of Canada. Gotta have a contingency for everything. Absolutely. Now they're probably pretty old, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that, that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much, Dr. Tara. This was endlessly fascinating as always to, to learn and discuss US uh, security, US security policy, US politics in general. Um, thank you for joining us as our second guest on SecurityScape and for your support in this new venture with CMSS. Um, 
to our audience, please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at SecurityScape if you haven't already. And don't forget to watch for new episodes every third Monday of the month. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next month with another great conversation on security and strategic studies. So bye, everyone.